Open your Bibles to Hosea chapter 13. Hosea 13, great text for us to look at on this particular Sunday. We just had a Friday the 13th, and I made that comment to my kids, oh, it's Friday the 13th, and they looked at me like, so? Anybody born, what, before 1980 uh, remembers uh, the character Jason? Right, we were watching Christmas Vacation, and and Chevy Chase comes out in that hockey mask and that chainsaw, right, looking at his neighbors. Uh, what a crazy, crazy movie that is. Even crazier though was Friday the Thirteenth. This text reads like a Friday the Thirteenth movie. Um, now that's not exactly PG, so let me make it a little more PG. This text reads like a Pinocchio story. Remember the movie, there was a cartoon, Pinocchio, it actually came from a book by the name of The Adventures of Pinocchio, written by Carlo Collodi. It was an 1883 classic, and it tells the story of a puppeteer, a man who makes a marionette by the name of Pinocchio. As soon as he makes that marionette and it becomes alive or active, it runs away. And remember the father? Who was the father? What was his name? Geppetto. Right? And he runs after, runs after Pinocchio. He follows after, pleading for Pinocchio to come back, return to the safety of his home. In the end, though, Geppetto, in that first part of the story, he's tossed into jail. And Pinocchio is finally free of his um, oppressive father. But that only lasts, that freedom and that sense of, yeah, I'm away from the strings. It only lasts for a short time because nobody shows Pinocchio any mercy. And he's hungry. In the early part of the book, Pinocchio, and not so much in the movie, but Pinocchio, I guess Walt, whoever did that? Walt Disney did the movie? I don't know. Whoever did the movie, they didn't leave this part in. He is hungry and he crawls up to sleep a little too close to the fire. And Geppetto gets out of jail, comes home to find that little Pinocchio's legs have been burned off. Horrible little story, but it gets better in the repentance of it. Geppetto and him come back in a great reunion in the middle of the story. At least you think that that's how the story is going to end, but that's not the ending. Um, Pinocchio begs his dad to give him his legs back, right? He feeds him with a meal that Geppetto had for himself. He gives him his own food, and through the pleading of the son, this puppet, he makes him legs. And he, in his repentance, says, promises, Pinocchio promises, I'll be a good lad, I'll learn a trade, I'll go to school. Geppetto, in the story, sells his coat to buy Pinocchio what? Do you remember? A little primer, an ABC primer, so he can go to school, an English book. And you know the story, Pinocchio heads off to school, but he never makes it to school. And in his sin, in his self-destruction, it gets worse, and it gets worse, and it gets worse. He's, he, he took his eye off the path, right? And as we know, he went farther and further, further and further into the path of destruction. Isn't it amazing how far sin takes us? We just give it an inch, it takes a mile. We give it a mile, it takes an ocean away from us of destruction and guilt and grief. We look at the pathology of sin in Hosea 13, we, we, we see a call to order for those of us who, and I think it's really all of us, 
who have experienced the path of self-ruin. Some of you need to hear one thing to motivate you. You need to hear that God is worthy of your confidence. He is a limb, and you go out on a limb with him, he will not break. You need to hear that he is worthy of your trust. You need to hear that. And you're motivated by that. Man, you just need to know it. Things have failed you. Money has failed you. Your spouse has failed you. Your kids have failed you. Your, your own inner peace, right? You, you struggle for mental health yourself inside. It's failing you, and you need to know that God will never fail you. That motivates you. Some of you, though, that's not where you need to be. You need conviction. You're, as we saw last week, you've been shepherding wind, chasing after things that don't amount to anything in your own life, this text will say, has become vaporous. It is but a wind. Um, it is vacuous. And in that vacuum, you are stuck. And you need a little bit of fear, maybe a whole lot of fear. Because if nothing changes, you're going to end up like the story doesn't end. Pinocchio's story ends well, right? He comes to the father and the father makes him a real boy. He recognizes that he is a puppet. He is a wooden thing. And the next fire might not take his legs. It might leave him as a pile of ash. And in the fear of that all, right? In the fear of that all, he comes to the father and the father makes him a real boy. Maybe that's what you need to hear. If you keep going down this road, you're going down. I'm seeing a lot of faces here who need to hear this. If you keep going down it, you're going to end up destroying your marriage, destroying your kids sitting next to you, destroying yourself. But if you come to the Father, he can make you a real man. He can make you a real woman. He can make you a real dad and a real mother, the kind of mother that her children, like the proverb says, rise up and call her blessed. That's what God can do. So maybe it's confidence you need to hear. Maybe it's conviction. Maybe it's fear. But this text is going to provide both. All right, so the path of self-ruin. Like last week, no one ever asked me, but I think the final verse of chapter 12 begins at the beginning of chapter 13. At the end of chapter 12, we read these words. Look, look down, chapter 12, verse 14. Ephraim has provoked, fill in the blank, God to bitter anger. Wow. Have you been there where you provoked God to bitter anger? So his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him. He's going to leave him alone. You know, you don't want to get to that place where God's source of discipline is to hands off. He gives you a word of correction. You don't, you ignore that. He gives you the hand of correction. You ignore that. And God says, okay. That's where Ephraim had gotten. And he will not bring he will bring back his reproach on him. The term provoked here captures uh, the idea of God's agitation and anger. And the reason is that God has been demoted in Ephraim's heart. At the heart of every problem is a heart problem. This guy has a heart. This, this tribe has a heart for everything but God. And they're good things. You know, oftentimes good is the enemy of great. You have a heart for that sport team a lot more than you have a heart for your lover, your bride, or your spiritual bride, Christ. It could be the love of a, a love of a hobby, the love of a job, the love of anything, and you demote God in your heart. And so Ephraim is going to be in the target here. At the beginning of chapter 13, you see Ephraim mentioned again. Look at this, 13.1. This northern kingdom, Ephraim spoke. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling 
Oh man, he was a great tribe. Now in the book of Hosea, you've heard me say that Ephraim, this largest, strongest military tribe of the 12, is synonymous with the whole 10 tribes of the north, what we call Israel. Two tribes in the south, Judah, this is the 10 tribes of the north. And as an epitome of that, Ephraim is often brought under judgment and conversion. He wants to change Ephraim's heart. Here, I think Ephraim is being addressed directly as the tribe of Ephraim. Now, in the book of Hosea, Ephraim is mentioned 37 times. So you better take notice of this tribe. Do you remember the history of the tribe? Is it one of the 12 sons of Israel? No. If you know your Bible, it's not. So why is it one of the 12 tribes mentioned here? Here's the story. Joseph was a hero of faith. Man, there's some great heroes to be imitated in Scripture. If you are suffering right now, you need to read the story of Joseph. He suffered in order to save others. He was, in my mind, the greatest typology of Jesus in the Old Testament, more than Moses, more than Hosea. Hosea is a type of Christ. I think Joseph goes to links that no one else goes. And so Joseph is one of the 12 sons, right? And in Genesis, 30, Genesis 49, Jacob is old, the father, Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, studied him last week. Jacob takes his 12 boys and he blesses them. But before he blesses the other 11, Joseph comes in. Remember, Joseph, Joseph was the one who his brothers, his brothers uh, threw him into a ditch and tried to kill him. And then one spoke up in insanity. They said, nah, let's not kill him. Let's sell him into slavery. If you've got a, that kind of dysfunctionality in your family, <laughs> right? Joseph had it, right? I, I hope you don't have that kind of dysfunctionality in your family. They sell you into slavery. But Joseph's family did. His brothers sold him into slavery after attempting to kill him. But God, as it said at the end of the book of Genesis, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And God used this. And in his slavery, right, he gets, rises up in Potiphar's house, falsely accused, goes back down into jail. God had a purpose there. He brought him into Potiphar's house and allowed him to be falsely accused so he could be brought into prison. So if you think that your life has gone from bad to worse, and you think, huh, God, am I cursed? Am I cursed? I go from one bad relationship to the next. I go from one bad job to the next. Think of Joseph. He ends up in prison, and that's the best place he could be because God is going to use him to interpret the dreams of two. One will die, one will live, and remember Joseph, and he will be brought up to second in charge of all of Egypt underneath Pharaoh himself only. And God uses Joseph to save not just one nation in a famine, but two nations in a famine. So the dream interpreter becomes the dream maker. It's a great story. So Joseph, Joseph is the golden child, rightly so. And he brings his boys. He's got two boys, Ephraim and Manasseh. Who was born first? Manasseh. Manasseh's the firstborn. And he brings Manasseh and he puts him on the right side of Jacob because he says, Daddy, I want you to bless your grandchildren. He brings the grandson, Manasseh, to his right hand, and he brings Ephraim to his left hand, and he grabs his old, blind father's hands. And you know he's old and blind because of the, the story, the way it re reads. And he grabs his hands, and he can't see very well. But in the story, Jacob crosses his arms. And instead of putting his right hand on Manasseh, which would be the hand of greater blessing, he puts his right hand on his other side, Ephraim, and his left hand on Manasseh. Great story. And in the course of the blessing, Manasseh really does become, Ephraim really does become one of the greatest. 
uh, they, they have a jealousy against Judah, right? They did not support David because they thought they were better. Uh, they gave back up before David when Jephthah and Gideon are judges, these military leaders. Man, did Ephraim give them a headache, a heartache, right? Uh, Joshua, they're proud of Joshua. He came from Ephraim. Joshua, this military commander. Um, again, a prideful, prideful tribe. At first, they start out with great blessing, but then it gets to their head, and they become a fat cat, and they think it's all about them. So it's not surprising, chapter 13, second part. Look at what it says. Ephraim spoke, there was trembling, but he exalted himself in Israel. He became proud, so mighty, so mighty you lost your fear of God, Ephraim. But ball through ball, he did wrong. See, when you become um, the Lord of your own life, you're not meant to hold that position. You're not meant to elevate yourself. You're not meant to praise yourself. And the human heart longs for something greater than itself. And in the vacuum of God's position, you create another God. And your heart becomes an idol-making factory. And so you worship, fill in the blank. You worship that hobby. You worship those Dallas Cowboys. You worship that sports team. You worship that job. You worship that celebrity. You worship that music. And there, many of them are fine things, but they take the place of God and they become an idol. And they worshiped Baal. It was a fertility God. We've talked about it over and over again. They worshiped the God of agriculture because they were farmers. And they sacrificed their kids. And this text will say they kiss the calves. They go to the north or they go to the south. They go to the golden calf. And man, they kissing all over it. In their wisdom, they became foolish. So Israel had been suicidal. And this text is going to diagnose the suicidal tendencies of this tribe. Genesis 2 said it would happen, right? Genesis 2 said in the day you eat of it and you think you can be the arbiter of what's right and wrong for you, when you think you can choose what's good and what's bad, and you, you develop your own daytimer. Yeah, I just dated myself. Nobody has daytimers anymore. You, you lay up your own calendar. You lay up your own financial plan, and you don't pray about it. You don't consider God's priorities, and you lay up your own life, and you raise your kids to the way you want them to be raised, and you don't ask God, and you don't follow God. And the day in which you eat of it, you will surely, what did Genesis 2 say? You will surely die. And we've been living out that story of Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. It can happen to a person and it can happen to a nation. When you fly solo and you think you don't need to pray all the time and you don't think you need to spend a bunch of time in the Bible, it's going to be okay. I'll just go through the motions. I'll fly solo. You nosedive. You nosedive. You die. Now he states, verse 2, how grotesque they had become. And now, verse 2, they sin more and more and more. Uh, the present time in Ephraim's life is no, see no change in behavior. The nation's sins heap up in their high places and they increase to mountainous proportions. The phrase they sin more and more implies they just kept on wandering in search of God, but not searching for God. They had chosen the wrong way. They're stuck and they're getting worse. Now, the specific form of sinning is spelled out in the next part. And they make for themselves molten images. They didn't just need one idol. They had to have a bunch of them. Idols skillfully made from their silver. Man, they, 
They're worshiping the God of excellence here. They're, these are pretty gods. These, are, these, aren't, these aren't poorly made things. It's, it's, this isn't just the ugly stuff you see in the dark. These are, these are shiny things. These are things that seem to be pretty. Skillfully made. They got the best craftsmen, and they made these things out of the nicest metals, all of them the work of craftsmen. Now, here's a strange statement. Look what it says. They say of them in taunt, let the men who sacrifice kiss the calves. Um, in Hebrew, it's let the men who are either being sacrificed or sacrificing. It's the idea of pointing most likely to human sacrifice and kissing these golden things. What is this? They had debased themselves to the point where they go to the northern place that Jeroboam the first set up, or they go to the northern, these, these false, and by the way, Jeroboam the first was an Ephraimite. And they think they're following their leader. You remember that sin? We had a whole chapter on the sin of Jeroboam the first. In order for political expediency, he used religion in order to make it a little easier and say, hey, you don't have to go down to Jerusalem because those, ten tri- those two tribes down there, they don't follow me as the political leader. Let me set you up a place, a couple of places in the north and the south where you don't have to go all the way into full true faith. You can go a halfway, a half measure, have a designer religion. We'll get our own priests. We'll get our own festivals. Yeah, they have Passover. We'll make up a pseudo-Passover. And we'll make a golden calf. And here they're killing their kids. They're sacrificing their kids or other humans. And they're worshiping the creator. Now, note the creature. Now, notice that they flipped it. God intended for animals to be sacrificed and humans to be loved and cared for. They loved and cared for animals and sacrificed humans. God said in Genesis 1 and 2, it's God, men, animals. And by Genesis 3, that's flipped. Satan, the snake, slithers down the tree and gets them to flip the divine order. And then it's down animals, man, and God is demoted down to serving us. And he becomes the lucky rabbit's foot. He becomes the vending machine God who you only go to when times are rough. And when times are good, you ignore him or you're at least mildly indifferent and in the process, they had done that, and we do that. That sounds a lot like our culture. They had per- idolatry had perverted the nation, and they had lost their value system. Sounds like Romans 1, professing to be wise. Oh, they're so wise. You know who the wise people in our culture are? There's, there's these university professors, and they're the atheists. Oh, they're the smart people. Professing to be wise, they become fools. Romans 1.23, they exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of a corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God in his punishment gave them over. And animals in our culture have many more rights than a baby in a womb. Now, can this happen to a culture? Oh, yes. The rejection of God is always grotesque where human rights become a joke in places like China, Russia, right? North Korea, where there are no such thing as human rights in many of those places. It's all the rights of the leaders and that's it. See, this is why the 10 commandments are 10. See, everybody loves the 6th, the 6th or the 5th and through the end. The last 6 we want. Man, don't take my stuff, don't take my wife. Don't even covet why are you looking at her? 
Why are you looking at my car? Don't even covet my stuff. Don't steal from me. Don't lie to me. I want justice. But our culture says, I don't want the first four. But here's the truth. The rejection of the first four means that there is no foundation for the next six. There's no room for a, what a real mother and father is so there can be respect and there can be honor of a mother and a father. There's no room for rest. There's no room for personal property. Hey, it's Darwinian. If I want your stuff, I'm just gonna take it because that's what you have when you don't have God. It's grotesque. Verse three, therefore, shifts our attention here. Therefore, like they will be like, get a couple of similes here. Remember that in English in grade school? Like the morning cloud. What is that? Morning cloud, gone. He goes from the summer to the spring, like the dew which soon disappears in the spring, gone. Like the chaff which is blown away from the threshing floor. What, what time of the year are we there? Fall. Gone with the wind. That, that'd make a great movie, Rusty Mathis. They should name a movie that, or a book. And like smoke from a chimney, this is in the winter, the burning wood, gone. So, so in the previous chapter, last week we saw in chapter 12 that the people were described as wind shepherds. They're just, they're going after things that cannot be sustained. That team will not keep winning. That youthful body will not stick with you. Those kids will move on. Your health will fail you. Your wealth will fail you. All that. If you're going to live for those things, you're shepherding the wind and you are going to become this text. You will become those things. They are the wind. You, here's what he's saying. You, Israel, are about to become an archaeological dig. You will be an ash heap. You're going to have to dig down into the ground to find you, Pinocchio, if you don't change into the sun that God wants you to be. Your charred remains of your culture will be studied by other people in other times because you'll be gone. And it'll just be a proverb. Oh, remember old so-and-so. No. Is God that sovereign that he can do this? Is God that sovereign where he can pull the plug on a culture and just remove it? Yeah. Incidentally, that's where the Syrians went. That's where the Babylonians went. That's where the Persians went. That's where we, we, we have a country of Greece, but we don't have Greek Alexandrian culture. It's where the Romans went. There's no Roman empire because God pulled the plug. Is he that sovereign? Rick Rogers, is he that sovereign? Absolutely, and it's scary. See, this text is meant to scare you. Israel's sin has increased to the place of an unchecked infection. And when there is an unchecked infection, you got a couple of options. And they're not good options. You cut off limbs or life dies. I'm not going to describe it again, but we have horses. One had an abscess this last week. The only thing you can do is get it out of there or else you die. And in this case, your life your life works this way as well. Your appetites that you think, here, here, here's the choice. This is a conscious choice. The conscious choice of self-ruin is that you choose to enjoy, indulge what you think you want versus God's exaltation. See, idolatry is just that. I think that's pretty. I want it. I'm going to live for that. I'm going to worship that. I'm going to sing its praises instead of God. It's self-indulgence. It's called the American dream. 
work hard, save up some money, buy your things, live your life, retire at the time you want to retire, drive a Winnebago, go down to Florida and get all the other white-haired people to gather around you and talk about the good old days. That is not God's plan for your life. And your self-indulgence doesn't start out at age 70. Your self-indulgence starts out in your 20. And those things you have an appetite for and you can't get enough of, those things you put in your stomach end up eating you. And when you keep swallowing those things, swallowing your appetites, gorging yourself on them, even the negative, swallowing your guilt, swallowing your anxieties, and just trying to be your own savior, your stomach keeps count. And eventually you start destroying yourself and you can't sleep and your anxiety's too high. And every year, I've said this and it's true this year as well, 2016, the three most prescribed medicines are always, for the last 18 years so far as I can tell, it's always a sleep aid, an anxiety aid, and a depression aid. That's it. Because our appetites, our appetites end up chewing us up. See, overindulgence is always a form of idolatry. Hosea compared the people to these nothings, which they were very familiar, morning dew, chaff, smoke. Idols are nothing, and those who worship them become nothing, and they can't sleep, and they're stressed because you can't hold on to the wind. And when you become wind, when you become wind, life, life is rough. So God says, don't let this be your path. And we're only gonna look at two here. Let's look at the second choice. We consciously make and we go on a path of self-destruction. It is a choice to be destroyed. Choosing self-destruction. Now you might say, hey, pastor, I don't choose to be self-destroyed. Well, there is a, there is a either or here. It's not a both and. Either you're going to be saved the way that God tells you to be saved. And it is a present, you're saved in terms of heaven. But once you are saved in terms of heaven, you are being saved through Jesus as well. And he saves your marriage and he saves your kids and he saves your sense of well-being and he saves your sleep and he saves your life. He is your savior now as he is your savior then. And if you choose to not live in light of the good news of Jesus being your savior, you are choosing destruction. That's what this text is going to say. Hear it. All right, let's go. Verse four, strong verse. I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt. Strong verse. If fear doesn't get you confidence, I have not failed you, God says. He sets himself up as a sharp contrast between the shadowy existence of Israel and him. He is concrete. He is space, time, history. That's why in Christianity you can make movies of Christian truths. You can put a Charlton Heston and some Ten Commandments in his arms and make a movie. You can make a movie where Mordecai is a great hero for Esther. Esther's a hero too, but Mordecai comes in there and rescues. You can make a movie of Joseph and his coat of many colors because God in time and history has said over and over again, he is faithful and he is savior. Look at the command, you are not to know any God except me. For there, here, he gives a reason why that command is there. The first four commandments are set up because there's no other way to have a life that means anything. There is no savior besides me. I'm it. And the story is an old, old story where times get rough in your life, your job starts stinking, your marriage starts stinking, that kid has stunk and continues to stink because that's what, you know, humans do. And you 
call on the Lord and he's merciful and he provides and then things get better and what do you do? You go back to the old ways, you ignore them, you don't think of them. In their trials, Israel turned to God for help, but in their prosperity, they became proud and they turned away. Turned to idols and politics to help. Verse five, I cared for you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. <clears throat> when, when there wasn't anything to eat, I provided food out of heaven. And you saw the miracle and it fed your soul in the middle of that cancer treatment. And it fed your soul when your wife was walking out on you. And it was there for you and you called upon it and it was there and then you forgot it. And you went back to thinking it's all about you. Incidentally, Ark of the Covenant. Put the Ten Commandments in the Ark of the Covenant, right? What else did God tell them to put in there? Put a mason jar. I don't know if it's a mason jar, but put a jar of manna because I fed you. Is it they get to this point because God let them down? You know how they got to this point? It's because God is so good they got to this point. God was successful. Look at the next verse. Strong verse. They had their pasture. They became satisfied and being satisfied, their heart became proud. And therefore, they forgot me. Do you notice the progression? It's step one, two, three. They became a fat cat. And they got to the point, it's like every championship team that just won, right? Clemson wins against Alabama and all, everybody's all excited and about 10 of them now are thinking, I need to write an autobiography because look what I did. And no one will remember it later because it wasn't them. You got that great job and you think it's all about you. It's not. God gave you that brain. God gave you those opportunities. God gave you that talent. God gave you that spouse. God gave you those kids. It's about him. Here's the slippery slope of self-ruin. Here's how it looks. Number one, self-satisfaction with good things. You become happy with your stuff and things. And the most important things in life are not things. So when you're happy with your things, you're not happy with what God has for you. And you become prideful, self-pride. My power, my hands, my brain, my test-taking skills, my ability to make a deal, my ship came in, I did it, me, 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 and the me monster grows. And your spouse watches you and they're just shaking their head. Your kids watch you and they're just shaking your head. And you hit your bit, you hit your chest, and you just you know, make all sorts of noises and that's all you are, just making noises. Because God's looking up going, whoa, 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 what about me? You beat your chest. I'm the one who gave you everything in that. But in self-pride, you forget the Lord. That's step three. Step one, two, three. Spiritual amnesia comes over months and years of you thinking it's about you and about your career and about your retirement and about your life. You don't give money to the kingdom. You don't give time to the kingdom. The Bible is an afterthought. Every morning you get up and all you're thinking about when you get out of bed is what can I do to make my kingdom come, my will be done. Instead of the Christian who gets up every morning recognizing that every step he takes is numbered in God, and he says, not my will, but your will be done. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And you go to work and you're looking to expand his kingdom. But you know what you started out with? You started out with an acknowledgement in a prayer that your life is bound up in Christ and your life is hidden in Jesus and it's about him, not about you. And you prayed and you studied Bible verses and then you went to work. 
John Wesley was famous for saying, man, I got, no, it was, John, it was, it was Martin Luther. <laughs> he said one time, I have so many things to do, I'll never get them done today. I need to spend three hours extra in prayer today. Because he recognized that truth. Swindoll, I heard him say it, Chuck Swindoll at chapel one day, he said, I've met millions of people who live through adversity, but I've met very few who live through prosperity. How did Jesus say it? It is easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than a rich man to get into heaven because prosperity bloats up. Look at this, verse seven. Verse seven, when you got that kind of bloating, when you are constantly sawing off the limb that you're sitting on and you are in a self-destructive path, how do you rekindle a heart like that? If you are that person where you, as Brian said in his testimony, you are that pig-headed, that strong-willed, that you will not bend your neck, you are stiff-necked. Here's how God, here, how does God do it? He tears open your chest to get to your heart. That's how he does it. So it's going to tear open their chest. Look at this. Verse 7. I will be like a lion to them, like a leopard. I will lie in wait by the wayside. I will encounter them like a bear robbed of her cubs, and I will tear open their chests. Whoa. By the way, you see a little cub out in, in nature? You don't go pet it because mama bear is around the corner, and she is very protective. I will be like that. There will, I will devour them like a lioness. I will a beast would tear them. Now, lion, leopard, bear, beast. Does that sound familiar? If you know your Old Testament, where was there that transition of animals? Lion, leopard, bear, beast, unrecognizable. Daniel chapter 7. This is what Jesus called in that prophecy in Daniel 7, the beasts of Daniel 7, the time of the Gentiles. Each of these represents a nation. Lion, Assyria, Right, you got Syria, Babylon, Medes and Persians, Greece, Romans. That's what you have here. The Roman beast. It's the time of the Gentiles. Five nations who deny God and God will summarily snuff out each one of them. Because that's what you do. When you got a beast that is rabid, you don't try to play with it. You put it down. And all these nations came and God used them and then he put them down. His point here, though, is the Gentile nations are coming. Here's your life. We, we do this too. We think that we only need God's help for trials. Once we're rescued, once our money's rescued, our marriage is rescued, once our mental capacity and mental stability is rescued, we think we don't need it. It's, it's the bipolar syndrome. I'm bipolar, and I take my med, and I take my med, and, I t- and then I feel better, and I don't want to take my med. The gospel isn't just for eternity. The good news of Jesus, that he is your savior, is for you now. Oh, I love that text. Look, we're not gonna, we'll cover the rest next time. But this text says, I was your savior. In verse nine, let, the, let verse nine be our final verse. I want you to circle this because we're gonna highlight it next time. We're gonna end this time. This sits central in the text if at all possible, if you like tattoos, t- tattoo this one on your body, right? <laughs> it's a joke, but if you like tattoos, go ahead. Anyway, here it is. And the, the italics, by the way, are not in the original Hebrew. So here's how it reads in Hebrew. Your destruction, O Israel, that are against me, against your help. In other words, 
Your destruction is that you're against, you are sawing the limb that you're sitting on. You are biting the hand that feeds you. You are ignoring the one you brought to the dance. It's the church of Laodicea in the book of Revelation. You've, lo- you've left your first love. When you get rid of the limb, the limb that you sit on, God becomes dead in your life. And when a culture kicks God out of its culture, when God is dead, law is dead. When God is dead, right and wrong is dead. When God is dead, what a man is and what a woman is is dead. When God is dead, what a mother is and what a father is is dead. When God is dead, all that is, is. You just have nature. That's all you have. That's what is. And it's Darwinian survival of the fittest. And it's whatever you feel like. God draws the conclusion that in Israel's attitudes and actions, they have been suicidal. They have brought these calamities on themselves. It's a bumper sticker, but it sits so well in my heart. If there's no God, if you live like a practical atheist, you have no peace. But if you know God, you want God, and you serve God, and you stay with God, in Jesus, you make much of Jesus. In Jesus, you live for him, and you live in him, and you live for him. And everything in life is used in his life as the center of your life to make sense of your life. You know Jesus, you know peace. Has this rejection, this self-destruction happened in our culture? Where so-called smart people are the atheists and the secularization of government to the point where, hey, you know, we're going to see this next week. When the people want a king, they don't want Samuel. You know why they don't want Samuel? Samuel's the last judge. You know why they don't want Samuel? He preaches too much. They want Saul. Saul is tall, good-looking. He's smart. He's He's strong, he's a military leader, and Saul doesn't preach to him. Saul doesn't know his Bible, and they want a secular government. Do you know what Saul's name means? You asked for it. That's what the name means, you asked for it. It actually literally means that. You wanted this, you got it. And that's where God works. All right, let let me end with this. When it comes to your life, this second thing here, this idea of you looking to yourself, you looking to your, in your pride, you think that it's all about you. God only has one way to rip your chest open, and that's through prosperity, because a good father doesn't keep giving you the things that make you prideful. He takes. And in that process, it's going to hurt. I've said it so many people over the years. It's one of those tongue-in-cheeks things that I say, and I say it to you. You just need more pain. Because you think you're God, and you're living like that. Now, for those of you that fear and in your face isn't getting you, maybe the confidence that God is all you need. God is really all you're going to have. That team will let you down. That car will go old. That house will be condemned and destroyed one day. Your marriage will end at death. There will be one of you will die. That kid will leave. The thing you're living for is like chasing after the wind. They're good if they're good in the context of God, if you get the divine order right. If you worship the creation over the creator, you're out of whack. Don't live the American dream. Do not live the American dream. The American way is like this. In 1982, ABC News or World Report did a, it was a long time ago, some of you weren't even born in 1982, but it always stuck with me. They did a expose on an art museum. And in the art museum, this artist, don't know his name, I looked it up on Urban Legend. This is not an urban legend, this really is true. The artist made a chair, 
with a single-barreled shotgun pointed at the chair. And you could sit in the chair and look down the barrel. And according to the plaque, there was a real live shell in the gun, and it was cocked. And it was on a timer. They had some mechanism on the side. And according to the plaque, it said, within the next hundred years, the shotgun will go off. And that's crazy for an artist to do that. What's crazier is people got up in line, stood up for hours to go sit in this chair for a few minutes. They were gamblers. See, and so many of you are gambling your life, and I know you do it because I do it. I'm gambling my life on things that are wind, they're vapors, and I'm thinking it won't get me. I'm just a little bit of lustful indulgence of my flesh, a little eye candy, a little little fanning of the flame of bitterness and hate. If I just use that little bit of gossip, maybe that, that book that I read that, that gives me the romantic feelings that my husband doesn't, maybe that book will just, it's not that big of a deal, it's just a little thing. Just a, it's just a little single barrel shotgun pointed at my head and I'm gonna play with it in self-indulgence. I'm gonna play with it in self-destruction because it feels good. It's appetite suppressant. And it won't go off in my face. See, affairs don't start day one. They start day 600. And you think that little bit of friendliness, that little bit of flirting, that affair with that other thing, that other person, it's not going to be a big deal. And then you feed it and feed it. And here's the truth of this monster in this text. It cannot be satisfied. You'll have to feed it more. And that beast will grow. So you don't play with it. If you are on the path of self-destruction or you know somebody that is, let this be a wake-up call. He who is spiritual appraises all things. He who is not spiritual, what? Can't appraise nothing. If there's no God, there's no peace. You can't appraise what's right for you. If you follow the path of God, it works. Let me end with this. Listen to Jesus' words. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you, not as the world gives peace. If you're seeking after the peace that the world gives, that's not the peace that God gives. It's like a pill that'll make you sleep for that night, but it won't make your soul rest. You can't find it in a pill. You can't find it in porn. You can't find it in position, in pleasure, in power. No itch that your flesh has can be scratched by anything this world has. My peace, Jesus says, I leave you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You heard that I say I go away and I come to you. If I loved you, you if you love me, you would rejoice because I go to the Father. But I told you I am coming for you. So don't kiss the calves. Don't kiss your idols. Don't worship at their at their feet. There's a great little verse in Psalms. I saw this this morning. It says, chapter two, the final verse. And the New American Standard says, do homage to the sun. The actual Hebrew word is kiss the sun. Psalm two, kiss the sun. Don't kiss the calves. King Jesus is your life and that is your rescuer and that is your savior and you live for him and him alone. That's it. That's the recipe. That's the recipe. Let's pray. Father, for those in here who are self-satisfied, self-indulgent, self-fulfilled, self-lording, I know the signs because I struggle. We all struggle with that. I pray 
that either through the wake-up call or through the encouragement, the confidence you have in us, whether through fear or, or affirmation, encouragement or discouragement, may we wake up to what we're doing. It's a slippery slope of self-ruin. And Lord, uh, I, I know, I know, I know that my life only makes sense in light of you. And if there is no you, there is no peace. But if, you, if I know you, if I love you and seek you and follow you, I'll pray prayers like Proverbs 30, where it says, God, don't, God, don't give me prosperity and don't give me adversity. If you, give, if, if you give me poverty, then I'll look to you only in that time. If you give me prosperity, I'll grow fat and I won't care for you. Let me be in the middle. That's a good prayer. Let me be in the middle where I just know you, love you, follow you. But Lord, in the process of it all, uh, Lord, that roller coaster, that's the Christian life because that roller coaster is part of that rhythm where we know that we know that we know that we need you. And so, Lord, do whatever it takes to get us to that point. As scary as that prayer is, in Jesus' name, amen.